0: Hey and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science, to find out they have been fueled to do their research from personal experience and that they loved Ariel from the Little Mermaid, or that they buy too much fruit from the farmer's market and still buy almost expired discount figs because they're just too good of a deal. Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, if you're enjoying the podcast, and I really hope you are, consider supporting us through Patreon. You can do it for just $2 a month, and it really helps us forecast how much we can spread the podcast to other people, and it helps keep the lights on. A link to our Patreon page is in the show notes. Today's guest in his words...
1: I like to fidget. I do like wiggle quite a bit.
0: So you may notice a little noise now and then in the audio. Nothing terrible, just giving you a heads up. It's completely worth listening to, though, as our guest today is a close friend, coworker, a podcast teammate and my sunflower. Let's get to it with the beet juice king himself, Jevin Lorty. Hey, Jevin, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing?
1: Pretty good, Ben. Uh, Thanks for having me. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. And of course, you're welcome. I hear you're one of the teammates that makes this magic happen. I would like to start with your name and pronouns you prefer.
1: Uh, Yeah, my name is Jevin. It's like Kevin with a J, uh, Lorty. And my pronouns are he, him, his.
0: Fantastic. And could you provide a physical description of yourself?
1: Yeah. So imagine every bald guy with a beard and glasses you've ever seen. Uh, And that's what I look like, Um, but probably shorter. So (laughs) I'm about uh, (laughs) five, six and uh, all those descriptions. Imagine uh, David Cross meets Binging with Babish. If I can pull some pop culture references.
0: <laughs> I I don't know the second person. Is that person young to like put you at 32?
1: Is that how old yeah, you Yeah, nailed it. Uh, yeah, Babish is like a uh, YouTube food chef guy. Uh, super entertaining to watch. Makes really good food. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Any
0: identities you'd like to highlight? Uh.
1: Let's see, white, male, cis, het, that whole thing, uh, I I would say, is my uh, identity, uh, if I could put it into categories. Um, I'm a uh, husband, cat, dad, uh, student.
0: I feel like that goes along with the uh, bald glasses bearded guy thing yeah.
1: yeah just stereotype me whatever way you want it's probably true
0: <laughs> yeah you're gonna be 99 percent accurate yeah. you're gonna miss that one freckle but other than that spot on
1: uh i've brewed my own kombucha before um i ride my bike yeah that you know but i thought you didn't guess that i like to grow echinacea so you know what that one you didn't see coming.
0: Do you shop at a at a food co op by chance?
1: <laughs> How would you know? <laughs>
0: yeah, just thought. I thought you might be juicing these days, <laughs> and not steroids, oh, yeah. just juice.
1: <laughs> Love. I just just polished off a good old beaten ginger juice.
0: You mentioned you're a student. What do you do on campus?
1: So I'm a, a grad student. Um, I I guess technical titles would be graduate research assistant, and then I'm also a PhD candidate. So I've passed my prelims, I'm uh, preparing my dissertation, and I'm sort of winding down the, the end of the PhD road.
0: And we will get to that and like what's up next for you, but first, we have to go back into the past with the famous question, who was your first crush,
1: Jevin? I think it was pre-k or kindergarten. I don't know what her name was. I just remember, uh, I just remember, uh, I thought this girl was cute and I didn't know how to express it. And so we were sitting next to each other on the bus, you know, just a little four-year-old, five-year-old Jevin. And I just licked this girl's face. I just like (laughs) licked her cheek. Um, And so I guess that was the, the kindergarten way of like, of like, you know, slipping into her DMs. Um, and you know, she responded positively. She licked my face back. Um, and then we continued this like sort of back and forth, uh, four year old version of like, uh, making out, I guess, we just like licked each other's faces for like several minutes and, the teachers were super grossed out. I remember they told us to stop. And then after it was over, I was like, Oh, I feel like nauseous. Like that was gross.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Already you're ashamed. (laughs)
1: Uh, and I, yeah, I, I don't remember who it was. I, I didn't, didn't get her digits. Um, I don't remember anything about her, but, uh, I have this vivid memory of, of licking faces. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is not where I was expecting that to go. Um, but that's a first and perhaps the last uh, <laughs> trading licks story on this podcast. I'm um,
1: full of surprises,
0: Ben. <laughs> that's, and see, this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Uh, great chance to learn about your history. Okay. Well, all right. Transitioning from that, um, what was your childhood bedroom like?
1: Ooh, okay. Are we talking like, so I moved a lot as a child. So are we talking like elementary, middle, high school?
0: We can get the phases Javen. you if you want to start with elementary.
1: Okay, all right, so yeah, elementary slash pre-elementary. I probably had like um, a comforter on my bed that was like either the Little Mermaid or Aladdin. On top of my bed was maybe 50 to 100 stuffed animals. Uh, all perfectly organized and meticulously laid out uh, every day. <laughs> and, um, you know, they all had to have a nice view and feel appreciated and feel like that their their spot on the bed was valued. And then, yeah, I, I uh, let's see, I had a old Red Baron pizza kite on my wall, a lot of Disney stuff and and toys. Gotcha. Okay. Then
0: going to middle school.
1: Yeah, I think... I may have to have revised my first crush uh, answer because I think it was Ariel from the little mermaid, um, which probably explains why I had little mermaid bed sheets as a child. Um, (laughs) You creep. (laughs) Yeah. So apparently I was just there licking my comforter uh, (laughs) as, as little Jevin did. Um, Yeah. Moving on to middle school. This is one of my, my second favorite bedroom in middle school was in the attic of this house we had. And it was, uh, vaulted, like very short vaulted ceilings cause it was like a, a modified attic, uh, all wood panel, um, with built in shelves. And so my, uh, yeah, my Disney stuff got traded in. Um, I probably had like a boom box, um, I probably had a poster of like the Backstreet Boys, uh, starting to, uh, yeah, graduate from Disney into much cooler things like NSYNC and um, Britney Spears. Nice.
0: And then, I'm also curious, was this about the time you started figuring out that you had like a natural attraction to science? The thought, when you were gonna say like you had a lot of something on your bed, I went to dinosaurs, you were saying stuff to animals, but they're probably still animals. Perhaps there's some sort of draw to biology.
1: Yeah, I think I was a very curious child, but I didn't really know if that curiosity was directed at science until like high school.
0: Well, perfect transition. What was like high school Jevin like?
1: Uh, so high school bedroom was number one. It was, it was in a finished basement. Um, And I had just like so much space to myself. And I had like a TV and couch and bed and computer and drum set. My band practiced in my bedroom because it was it was like very open space um, uh, all in in that uh, high school bedroom.
0: I'm imagining like having all that space as a high schooler, like you you had the place to go hang out.
1: It was like get home, make a sandwich, go jam with the band But the sandwich making was really important because, you know, that's where that's where a lot of the experimentation started. That's where my real interest in science came from. It started as a love of uh, cooking, making sandwiches, baking cookies, looking at a recipe and saying like, you know, it's screw your recipe. I'm going to I'm going to put what I want in my cookies. I'm going to make a sandwich with peanut butter and jelly and ham and cheese and you know what, maybe that was a failed experiment, but I learned something and I move on to my next sandwich. Was
0: like cooking like your, I feel like it is like applied chemistry. Um, was it really like your gateway? And then you started thinking like, okay, how does this stuff like actually work for me being able to taste? How does this all get, you know, to a, a shape and form by like cooking?
1: Yeah. And I think it, it, it took a rejection first. So I first wanted, I thought I wanted to be a chef um, because of this love for cooking. So I went to work at a restaurant and maybe not a rejection so much as a realization or an epiphany. And I, I worked at this very fancy restaurant downtown and uh, I was a busboy and a host um, because I was too young to be a waiter. Um, This was probably about 14, 15 years old. And I was just, I became very disillusioned with the whole uh, chef career. A lot of the chefs, um, it looked like it's just a thankless, tireless job. And to be the chef that I dreamed in my head, you had to be like top chef number one, head honcho, have your own cooking show on the food network. Like one of those things where you're just, um, you just have spent so much time in the field that you're an expert, but all those years it took to get there, I think I was not really interested in. I just wanted to be creative and experiment with stuff and make weird sandwiches. So I I think I discovered science after that sort of epiphany that I didn't want to be a chef. And I picked up a book that was about, um, that was about biofeedback. So like, um, The whole concept of biofeedback is getting a response, um, like a visual or some sort of um, cue about what your body is doing. And then you can sort of change your body state in response to a cue. So an example would be like, um, I guess a basic example would just be like a watch that detects your heart rate. But a more advanced example would be uh, an EEG uh, that picks up your brain waves and, then you can alter your brain waves based on the response that you see. And that was what the book that I picked up was about. And I just thought that was so cool and got me like 100% hooked on uh, neuroscience for a very long time. I think in the past,
0: I've, when I've asked like, okay, where are you actually from or grew up? I think you've told me outside of Chicago. But you mentioned also hopping around a little bit. So was high school outside of Chicago and then you went to university after that?
1: Yes. So my parents moved a ton. They're kind of nomads, but they moved a ton before I got to high school and they, they stayed in one place for high school and that was Oak Park, Illinois. Um, and I was actually there from like elementary school to high school, but they moved within town, um, But prior to second grade, we moved like every year since I was born.
0: Okay. And was your university also there as well? Close to it?
1: Uh, in Illinois. Yeah. But, um, but a little bit further Southwest, it was, um, Knox college in Galesburg, Illinois. So kind of on that border of Iowa and like the quad cities, it's pretty close to there, sort of in the, uh, Southwest corner of Illinois.
0: Any specific attraction? I know you went into neuroscience. I'm not sure if they just like had a program or a lot of friends were going there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, they kind of sold me on the small college experience by saying that, you know, like we have cool equipment and you will get to use it as an undergraduate. Um, So I didn't really know, I guess, the, you know, the difference between doing research at a big institution versus a small liberal arts college that I went to, but, um, and I think there's pros and cons to each, like I got to um, participate and run some really cool uh, experiments at at my college that I might not have gotten to at a big college. But there's, of course, you know, great opportunities for research uh, at a big college as well, as I learned uh, when I went to one in grad school.
0: Did, what drew you to neuroscience? Was it just like the continue of biofeedback or did you start getting interested in more like how people were operating?
1: Yeah. I, uh, I, I guess I was interested in both the sort of the psychology side of it and, and the biology side the neuroscience just seemed like this, it, like exploring the deepest part of the ocean that we know nothing about. Like the brain has so many, uh, So many secrets that are are left completely undiscovered. And that really fascinated me. And I also became really interested in like um, uh, longevity and aging and preventing neurodegenerative diseases as well. And that kind of led me to my interest in the area that I'm in in grad school. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I also did um, my undergraduate in neuroscience as well. But I think what really got me into it was comparing different animal brains and just like their sensory systems and how like sharks can pick up like electricity within water. And like we can't do that. And it's, you know, not that far off from, you know, our parts of brains. It's just like I tuned to something completely different. It was for me kind of like unlocking maybe like you were saying. Unlocking a deep part of the ocean. Good
1: to know, and it's cool to hear about how you came to neuroscience because I, I don't, uh, I don't think I knew that about you.
0: So my my story is like I got rejected from applying to undergraduate programs because I was going into music composition, and then psychology was kind of my second love. And then I got into psychology classes, and I was like, I think I need a little bit more on the science side. Then discovered neuroscience, which led me into biology and. You know, just kind of learning everything about animals and comparing them, but also the mechanisms to that just seemed like the the secret sauce of everything that's like happening within our brain, how we're learning or talking and also just like the mind boggling things that animals can do with their sensory. Like so, you know, in our brains, we've got really large areas dedicated to the sensation in our fingers because we are very tactile with our fingers. Like if you think of the homunculus, the representation of like our sensory, it's like a big face, small body, and then big hands. But star-nosed moles basically have that same area for their nose, and like each little star digit on their nose is kind of like a finger, And it, but I think it's they even have more brain space dedicated per like volume. It's so like, what, what the hell is that like to sense everything with your nose?
1: That's really cool. Yeah, each, you just go around with your nose, like, touching everything. I'm trying to imagine if I was a human and you know, all my fingers were attached to my nose.
0: Just imagine when you're trying to lick, like, your crush's face. It could have just been completely different if people had, like, noses with all those digits. Um, all right, I'm going to hop on till after you did, like, so you completed your degree. Um, and you took some time off in between your undergrad and grad school. Um, and you, and you worked, what was your work experience like?
1: I was sort of following the psychology path and I started working at a company that did, um, behavioral therapy for kids on the autism spectrum. Um, so this was, uh, working off of, um, a lot of, uh, behavioral conditioning principles, um, where we would sort of, uh, teach the kids. In a way that um, that was very systematic and made um, it, it made the learning process very organized and incremental, and um, had really uh, amazing results. And um, so, yeah, I did that for seven years, um, a few years sort of as a technician therapist, where you're you're just performing the therapy every day with kids, and then I did about three years as sort of next level up, which was designing the uh, curriculum for each kid. So you look at where, where are their learning needs and uh, how can I find uh, a program, learning program, that will fit this exact child's learning needs because they're also different and, um, and have their own strengths and weaknesses. And so the, the curriculum is really like specially tuned uh, to, to each child which was really cool. And that was um, behavioral uh, behavioral therapy developed by Dr. Lobot for for those that are interested in the <laughs> the technical
0: side. Yeah. And was it in this time period, because it's just a couple of years, I'm sure you probably noticed some trends when working with this population, that you became interested in nutrition because now you're in a grad school program that is nutrition.
1: I had... Noticed in the kids that I work with, worked with um, anecdotally just behavioral differences. Whenever they would, you know, we'd be there for snack time. I'd see what they would eat, and then I would have to put them through a potentially stressful teaching environment. Not really stressful, but like I had to apply stress to them in sort of the uh, more behavioral way of conceptualizing stress. I had to um, try to teach them something. And and it was a very fun learning environment too. We would we would alternate like play times and learning times. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't that stressful for them. But um, I would definitely notice differences based on what the kids ate. Um, and some of these kids were picky and would only eat very specific foods. And I would notice uh, differences both within that child and between children that had just different diets. No data at all on this. This is just completely me like noticing like, oh man, there's a lot of yelling today and all we ate was fruit snacks. And then I also, uh, in my personal life, was struggling with nutrition, sick all the time and I was driving between houses all day. And so I I essentially had a tub of wheat snacks in my car, (laughs) like just like sun chips and crackers, a peanut butter crackers. um, Just like any type of like cheap uh, wheat-based snack you could find was in this giant tub in my car. And I would just drive, reach over and munch on it all day because that's all I had time for. And I was taking off a lot of time for work because I was sick constantly. Uh, Ended up being diagnosed with celiac disease and um, have (laughs) made a lot of life changes and improvements since then. But also another thing that led me to, uh, to think more about nutrition and also returning to, to sort of my past loves of, uh, of, of really being interested in age and longevity and Alzheimer's disease. Um, I think it, all those are, are very like connected with what we eat. Um, and that led me to the nutrition uh, department at UW. To
0: back up also just for people um, listening Steve and I have known each other probably going on, I think, technically five-ish years, maybe four and a half. But I think at least on my end, we we became uh, close friends pretty quickly, which is great. I'm not sure if you remember this moment because I was I was in I was rotating in your lab, which means like I'd spent a month in the lab to make sure it was going to be the right home for me doing work going forward. And one of the things that I really liked was working with you But if you can remember, um, I think we went to a movie. We went to go see Black Klansmen, And before the movie started, I asked you like, "Okay, would working together destroy the friendship? And no, it hasn't, which is pretty nice. And since then, not only do we work together, but we are still hanging out. And then we're working on this podcast together. So I feel so far the state of our friendship is strong, Jevin.
1: Yeah, I think it can endure multiple uh, co-working situations. Um, I just pitched another another idea to you to work on a completely different uh, project. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's working out.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, I've, you know, with the podcast and business behind it, I thought like, okay, who are some people I could go f- forth into new realms and work with. And I was, you know, I I think I told you before, like you joined the podcast team was like, I'm a little hesitant of working with friends because I just don't know how that's going to work. But I think in hindsight, with everything that we just talked about, it's like, oh, you're definitely a person that I could see working with on multiple different projects in the future. And I think it works out pretty well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going great. I think yeah, it, it uh, you're right. It could get dicey working with friends, but I think probably only if like you would need to have some sort of HR type talk. And uh, you know, I'm I'm showing up late. I'm you know drunk on the job, and like you have to confront me. And so it's really just you know if I start being an asshole, then uh, then uh, <laughs> we've got a problem. But uh, I'll I'll try to not do that. <laughs>
0: Luckily, you've done all those things and still do your job. So it's it's perfectly fine. (laughs) Both in lab, outside when we're hanging out, playing magic, whatever. You hold it together really well, Jevin. Since we've known each other for, um, I think, a solid four years at this point of actually working together. Um, And we've gone from me, I think, being like 26, 27 to now 30, you would be... 28, 29 to 32. How do you think we have changed over those four years? If anything comes to mind.
1: Interesting. I feel like I've gotten, uh, less stupid. Um, <laughs> like there was definitely a, uh, a, uh, you know, 21 to 25 is a very stupid time in uh, a person's life. And, um, I feel like I was uh, half of a a human, um, just kind of like wandering around being dumb. Uh, and now I feel like I, I I won't say I'm like a hundred percent, not that anymore, but I'm definitely less that.
0: Are you 70% smart and then like 20% dumb? That's what I'm like, getting the vibe <laughs> from what you're trying to describe yourself as.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then 10% beet juice. I think you have had, in my perspective, and maybe this is just you being more comfortable in, uh, as I got to know you, but I feel like you've loosened up a lot. And like, at least the, um, the first impression of you is very serious, but then, you quickly see under the surface that you are, are very silly. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that silliness and relaxedness and comfortableness has only increased as I've gotten to know you.
0: Yeah. I think that was a a game changer during the pandemic. I think I stopped caring as much, um, cause there were more important things than how the world kind of viewed me. And also like, Not everyone's going to like you. That's unavoidable. So you might as well be you. um, And you're just going to get some haters. And that's fine. Can I offer how I think you've changed a bit?
1: Yeah, please do.
0: So, yeah, I wrote this question. I was like, oh, I'm super interested in getting like your perspective. I feel like I've been able to see your, I think, focus go a little bit more narrow in a good way so i think you and one thing i wanted to ask you about it's like you've always had like a lot of side hustle projects and interests and i think you went from um maybe like thinking about going into something to actually doing it and also making it work which is really cool so you've got you know you've, you've written in the past for medium you got some like blog articles that way because you were interested in like science writing it seems like you've really gotten into like the social media for the podcast, and you're also still like writing for EDH Reich, in addition to doing the PhD. So it's nice that you like it's really cool to have watched and see you like progress through your interests and then turn them into action.
1: Yeah, and i I really like um I really like this this whole side hustle thing. And I was thinking about it last week, and you talking to Julia about it, and uh, it I, it seems just like such a good a good way to go that is is very different from, I think, like the past, I don't know how many years where people are just like, you know, I got my job, I go to my job and then I go home and like, that's all I do. But like, you can do so much more than that. Um, And it's it's fun and you're learning new things and you get uh, a little money on the side.
0: Julia, like I asked Julia about like um, our mutual friends, which you are also in that group. Uh, cause everyone seems to have like a side hustle and she was like, yeah, we're totally millennials. It's like, damn it. We are totally millennials. Like I didn't always <laughs> identify, identify myself as a millennial, but yeah, that is extremely true.
1: Yeah. what did you do today? You started a podcast. You, uh, you know, woke up, had some avocado toast. Um, <laughs> I went, I went to my co-op and then juiced.
0: I moved back into my parents' basement the fourth time <laughs> after my screenplay didn't work out about
1: me being a grad student you're just you're just in here doing research the whole time for your screenplay you're not actually wanting to be a grad student. yeah yeah it's odd i keep
0: trying to publish this screenplay to the nih for all these different grants and they're just saying like they're scoring me so low with your side hustles too do you feel like it is a way to find out more about yourself or pursue interests? Do you think it is a way to leave a bit of a legacy as well?
1: I think leaving a legacy is an interesting thought that I hadn't thought of before. Um, and writing always feels like you're, you know, producing anything, content creation always feels like you're leaving a legacy. So that is an interesting thought. I think for me, it's, it's more, um, a, wanting to be productive with my time and say like, oh, I have this hobby of playing Magic the Gathering. How can I turn this hobby into, into something productive? Um, and then B, also it's tough to be in one career and, and not know if you're going to love it forever. But if you have multiple things you're doing at once and test sort of testing the water in multiple areas, then you, you just open yourself up to so many options later in life. So, you know, right now uh, I'm working on my, my degree, but I'm also uh, working with professors to grade papers. Like maybe I want to be a teacher someday. I'm, I'm writing content about this card game. Like maybe I want to do more of that later in life. I'm uh, working with you on the podcast like that's sort of testing the water with science communication and practice and social media. So it's a way to sort of um, yeah find out more about yourself what you like and what you want to do with the rest of your life as a career potentially.
0: Maybe you would agree with this or not. I think it's like the way that the economy has kind of been designed to for our generation, like our, our parents, I would say the standard models, like you can get a job, you can get a house, you're kind of set millennials. It's a little bit more up in the air. So I think having that unease leads us to find a lot of different opportunities just to kind of have some security at the same time as well. Like I think one, Definitely, like pursuing all these interests, super valuable. Finding out more about yourself, I think, also an, another millennial trope. Um, but a, a little, maybe, perhaps a little bit of fear too, to just be like, I need to be able to land on my feet no matter what.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's easy to see that we're making relatively less money um, than our parents were. Like, uh, you know, job pay has not increased as much as it should. Um, to keep up with inflation. So, it, yeah, I think it's definitely that fear, that like search for like, okay, if I am going to be comfortable in life, I can't just have one job. Um, and, and sometimes you can. Yeah, that happens. But giving some yourself some extra options is only going to help.
0: Another thing that just popped into my head, now I can only say I have one side hustle, which is mostly just doing this, uh, previously it's was more. <laughs> it's a big one. Um, do you feel like your side hustles energize you, drain you? Maybe it's a mix of both. I feel like for most of the time, it's energizing to see like what can be built. And I'm learning that I really like building things in lots of different capacities. But sometimes I'm also just so tired.
1: Yes, I think variety energizes me. And... By having all of these different things I'm doing, it it keeps me in, it keeps me going, it keeps me energized. If if I'm not into something one week, it's okay because it's a very short piece of my time. Um, if I'm writing an article, I'm just dragging. i like, oh, this is you know not fun. Um, it's okay because I'm only doing it for five hours this week. I'm not doing it for 40 hours. 50 hours. Um, so in that way, I just, I, I love variety and that, uh, that, that definitely energizes me.
0: Yeah. I've also wondered like, the, does that variety make us more productive too? Cause I've, I've felt like my side hustle, like making this podcast has definitely grown my confidence and able and being able to just go sp- speak to random people or, uh, you know, we do these improv games which are fun, but it's also a great test of just throwing, throwing yourself into chaos and hopefully something works out. And it's a, it's a skill to develop. You know, I was reading a paper earlier today where, uh, later on coming up, I'll help like teach an improv class, which is to medical students to make sure when they are hit with like really difficult conversations with their patients or situations, they have a trained skill to just be comfortable in chaos. Um, so I feel like that's translatable. I would also imagine like your writing helps in your academic writing, like your EDH rec writing, and also like social media too for branding yourself or making yourself look good in the university's eyes and marketing for them.
1: Yeah, I definitely think it goes both ways. I guess I should clarify for anyone that doesn't know, um, edhrec.com is a, uh, a website that uh, does stuff with Magic the Gathering. The card game. Uh, just a little, little clarification there. I think we're throwing it around, but, uh, people might not know uh, what that is. Um, yeah, that's nerds. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's funny that you're doing a, uh, improv class, uh, for doctors because probably the one profession I don't want improvising <laughs> when they're on the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: It's not improv comedy. They're not trying to make you laugh. For our particular research, like we've had to call participants who are undergoing chemotherapy for lung cancer. And so that can be a difficult conversation. And it's not like some, we didn't get trained for that in undergrad or necessarily in our graduate program either. So having that improvisational skill, I think, to bounce... I don't know, some humor in there or just empathy and be attuned to like what they're saying is so useful. It's not like we're going off the script that's required of us. But I think just having the empathy and showing that we're also human and acknowledging that they're human, too. Um, I feel like that's a decent segue into finally asking you like what you're actually doing for research and what gets you jazzed about it.
1: My research is all about uh, diagnosing malnutrition in the hospital um, because it's just so important for helping patients recover. Um, So if you think about our our muscle and fat as like emergency food rations, um, when those rations are gone, a sick person is going to have just such a hard time getting better. So if we know a patient is malnourished, we can give them Uh, extra food, like with an IV or a stomach tube, or they can just eat it if that's uh, an option. Um, But the tools that dietitians have right now to um, detect malnutrition is just sort of looking and touching that person, which isn't the most reliable measure. They're very good at what they do. But um, what if we could give them uh, the tools to see inside the patient and know exactly how much muscle and fat that person has, and then come up with a feeding plan to help them recover the best. So that's the problem that we're trying to solve. We're, we're using x-rays and MRIs that patients just get all the time. And, uh, those are perfect for looking at malnutrition.
0: You know, sometimes I think like we can get so lost in our research and the technicalities of it that we forget. The impact that we have is basically because I'm in a very almost identical you know, field as you. We've got our several projects, but a lot of the same themes um, is that the impact of our research is basically improving the care of a lot of older adults or trying to make people stronger throughout the age, which great because there's millions. But also it affects a lot of people within our family, too. You know, we're at the age where our grandparents are starting to become a bit weaker. Um, you know I've got a ninety seven year old grandma and she's not as fast as she used to be you know when she was seventy by any means and so it's cool to like work on these really quantitative kind of potentially universal ways to address like muscle health
1: yeah and this be- this really like became extremely relevant to me when my grandma uh went to the hospital and um she had um, congestive heart failure. And uh, the project I ended up working on was working with patients with heart failure who are getting a heart transplant. Um, so this became very relevant to me uh, personally. Um, and in the hospital, I was with my grandma and I got to see that decision point where the doctors were debating whether to give her nutrition or not. and it was this very, very critical decision point because there are some risks to uh, giving somebody nutrition by a tube or an IV. Um, and there are also benefits. So it's it's this really tough decision of, do the, risk, the benefits outweigh the risks? So I could see the doctors wrestling with that. At the same time, I was like stressing out that like, Uh, my grandma wasn't getting the nutrition that she needed for that like time before they decided. Um, But it, it, it all came, you know, crashing into a very vivid picture for me uh, during that time period. And uh, it's, it's very um, uh, great to work with heart transplant and heart failure patients moving forward too. And my, my grandma did uh, survive and, and came through that. And she's, Driving now, but that really drove drove home the importance of our work on a, on a very personal level.
0: Because both you and I are gonna are slated to graduate within a year, which means probably going on to something else. Um, are there things in your life that help guide larger decisions for you?
1: I think we all have some sort of inner compass or gut feeling of, of what we should do and I think think listening to that is important and it's sometimes that voice is hard to hear and sometimes you need to picture what that voice is going to say in a year or five years or ten years um, and I think that that can be challenging but it's, it is so important to do to picture picture yourself in the future and what is going to make you happy.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think during this pandemic, I especially kind of refined the view for larger decisions and sometimes even smaller ones. It's like, will I be happy with this decision that I've made in five years or 10? Will I always wonder like, what if, would I be happy telling my grandkids if I ever have any, um, that I did this during X period in Live with that. Let's let's go for this one. Um, this is specific to you. And I'm curious, uh, what is something that I've done that has pissed you off?
1: <laughs> wow. What's something that Ben has done to piss me off? I, I think it's a funny anecdote to when we first started working together, if you remember, we kind of like would fight over the radio and, and I'm, I'm very like auditorily sensitive, I think. And like, so, so Ben, you were like always wanting to jam out. You always want sort of like some background, uh, uh, you know, electronic music on to kind of like get into that flow state. And, and uh, I do sometimes, but at very particular times, and like, (laughs) I'm so particular about like what, pull me out of my flow state and so like I remember setting all these rules on you be like okay you can play music but like nothing with vocals and nothing with uh high hats and nothing with snare drums (laughs) and uh that was a a funny little bit of tension with us first working together but uh yeah nothing that headphones can't fix yeah I want to throw it back at you is there anything that I've done that pissed you off?
0: To add to the music, initially when we started working together, we were in the same room. Then maybe six months later, I think we were separate, which in my head was like, maybe that's pretty good so we don't distract each other because I think we could just talk for a long time. So there are three people in our lab. There's another grad student. That grad student and you, I think there was like a Taylor Swift album that came out and just like cranked Taylor Swift. And I was like, in my head on the other side of the lab in a different room, was just thinking like, I'm so glad I'm not in that room right now. <laughs> um, I don't, I think there's, it's more of a mannerism that I've noticed for you or just a behavior trait. I, and I don't like get mad about it and more. I just kind of, I think laugh and it's kind of cute. I think you're a little bit of a hoarder with things in your lab space. And so if I've noticed like, the paper towels that were in the halfway spot between us, or the the Kleenex that were in the halfway spot between us, are gone. I'm like, okay, I'll just go check Javon's space <laughs> real quick. And you know, ninety percent of the time they're there.
1: Yep, you nailed it. I just I don't think I'm really cognizant of it, but I will just like pick things up and carry them around and then set them down, and like never once am conscious about about it and it drives my wife, Megan insane. And she's like, or, or she like, uh, laughs at me a lot because I'm like, I, where did my phone go? I just had it in my hand and then I blink and it's gone. Um,
0: yeah, it's pretty harmless though. I don't think it's ever been anything really important.
1: Yeah. I haven't like picked up your wallet and you've like, where's my wallet? Oh, it's, in Jevin's desk drawer.
0: (laughs) Yes, I do love to leave my wallet out for people just to see um, in the middle of the lab space. I love to show them that like, look, I have no cash. I'm I'm such a millennial still. All right, I'm gonna move on to our improv game. So before I tell you our scenario, uh, I need a few suggestions from you. So the first thing, I will need a number.
1: Uh, a number? Uh, I would say 11 and a half.
0: 11 and a half. Okay. Uh, next, I need a unit of measurement.
1: I uh, I want to say uh,
0: light years. This might not turn out the exact did way I was I, thinking about okay. it? Cool. <laughs> no, we'll go with it. Okay,
1: then I need a spice or herb. A spice. Um, ooh, I have so many favorites. I'm going to say turmeric. Um, a junk food. Junk food. Oh, You can make me pick uh, ice cream. The last thing that you juiced. Well, it was uh, beets, apples, ginger, and carrots. Uh, you want to pick one? Go beets please. Alright, anyway, yeah, let's, go uh, let's
0: go with beads. Okay. And something you're allergic to pollen. I hate pollen. Get out of my nose pollen. So here's our scenario. We are both in nutrition and oftentimes within the realm of nutrition, we come across very trendy diets. So as an example of how Easy it is to hype fad diets that aren't necessarily based on evidence, we are going to argue in favor of these made-up diets, these new, hot, guaranteed-to-get-you-shredded diets. So we're going we're to do two each. They're going to be about 30 seconds to a minute. Um, I'll loosely keep time, per usual. Um, and so we're going to take turns amping up what we can get from these diets. So I can go first. Um, so the the first one is consuming 11 and a half pounds of turmeric. And then your diet after me will be amping up 11 and a half pounds of beets. And if you do this every single day, it is guaranteed to get you shredded and ripped and whatever other benefit that you want to throw into it. So, Jevin, I know you've heard about turmeric before. You can get it in all these supplements. It's a lovely color. It's so strong in color that it can turn even your black plastics, this kind of yellowness. And I have now found the cure to getting sunburned, which is consuming 11.5 pounds of turmeric. And here is how it works. So, You've heard of antioxidants, right? Turmeric is a natural one. But consuming 11.5 pounds of turmeric, you'd be actually impervious to any radiation from the sun because you will turn the color of turmeric. And this works for us because we're pasty white people. It works pretty damn well. So we would be able to negate any of the harmful rays from the sun if we consume 11 half pounds of turmeric. And we just do that by having 3 pounds of turmeric every single meal plus plus two and a half during snack time. Or you can try to eat it while you sleep. But I'd love to hear about your counter one that you think could be better, which is about beets.
1: All right. Let me tell you about beets. Beets, 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 bears. Battlestar Galactica. Um, so beets are the new hottest hip food diet. All right. Let me tell you about this. Your, your blood is red, right? Beets are red anything that you put in your body that's red is going to be good. It's going to be good for your blood. You can supercharge your blood and your performance today by eating 11 and a half pounds of beets. Pro athletes do this. They they take uh, blood infusions from other people. It's outlawed. You don't want to do that. But this is the next best thing to take your game to the next level is by juicing 11 and a half pounds of beets Get it into your body and your blood will become turbocharged. Maximize your oxygen consumption, maximize your performance, maximize your muscle power. And you can uh, you can maximize your best self with beats.
0: I'm pumped. I'm just going to like crunch into them every single day. My face will be stained, (laughs) but I think I can do something even better than that um i would like to introduce to you the diet that it is eating pollen for a whole light year over the course you're thinking light year oh that's a distance measurement i'm also switching it to a time measurement because that's a long amount of time and that's how much you need to consume pollen um but here's why because You've heard, okay, taking beeswax is good. You've heard uh, just licking flowers or people's faces is really good. You get good memories from it. But if you have pollen for a whole light year, your sex life is going to get supercharged because pollen is just sex stuff from trees. And so every single tree that you see will supercharge your sex life. You will... Get as hard as a tree trunk and (laughs) you will grow that big. Maybe that might get edited out. Um, It also might stay in. We'll see. But no matter what, it will charge your sex life because you will be feeling amped up on all this pollen. It is a great source of protein. It is a great source to get you inflamed and feeling agitated, which can give you a lot of energy. You won't be able to sleep which makes you uh, just up and able to do stuff and talk to more people. It'll help out with your dating life. Um, And so that's why I'd like to say you should be having pollen for all eternity.
1: Maybe if I like, yeah, eat it or um, bypass my nose, I'll, I'll love it and I'll be super pollen powered.
0: Or a suppository? Okay, so the diet that you're trying to pitch is also having ice cream for a light year is the new hip thing.
1: All right. Listen, I had a rough time getting out of bed for my entire life until I tried ice cream for breakfast. The only way to get yourself out of bed, rip roaring and ready to rumble. You can have choose from one of three flavors. Uh, super healthy Rocky Road uh, turbo nutrition uh, vanilla or my personal favorite uh, black cherry vitamin bomb so listen guys getting out of bed sucks but you can get out of bed the right way with ice cream and it's good for you
0: that's the thing this ice cream product Yeah, it's regular ice cream, but it's got 4,000% vitamin C and E and chromium. Like, we put so much iron in this ice cream, it's magnetic. That's how cool it is.
1: Just like your personality.
0: (laughs) Oh, thanks. Cool. Well, oddly enough, we have thrown in a lot of information that gets uh, sucked up into trying to get people to buy stuff um, and nutrition products. So hopefully this is fun for listeners, but maybe even educational especially all those dick jokes about pollen. (laughs) That's very helpful for the listeners. Um, So with that, Jevin, thanks for doing an improvised game. I'm glad we had some time to actually sit down and also learn more about each other and reminisce as well. So that was lovely.
1: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. Uh, This was uh, a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. Boy, we sure did cover a lot, but doesn't that happen when you're just chatting with a good friend? I think you can all call Jevin your sunflower now. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please become a supporter on Patreon. A small monthly donation will help cover costs of distributing the podcast, recording software, and getting the podcast out to others. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. Support from Jevin Loti and all the marketing endeavors. From Lauren Schrader on all the branding ideas, and Julian Nepper on website development and future editing.
1: Um, I think, and since we're a little off right now, it might be a good time for me to pee and just like take a second and think, um, <laughs> since I think we're already in like cutting zone. <laughs>
0: um, I think we'll be safe. I'll, I'll land and in, uh, go into the improv. I mean, I'm, I'm going to edit. Some stuff anyways, but...
1: Yeah. Okay. But I do have yeah. to pee. Okay. Go pee. All right. Sorry. It was going to happen think. at some point. So much juice and tea and everything. <laughs> yeah. Too much pee. I, my headphones off, but I can't... You can't oh. hear me peeing.
0: And this, dear listener, is what it's like to have the life of being a podcast host. Sometimes your guest pee and tinkle. You just gotta deal with it. Even if they're fully aware that they're gonna be interviewed. But, uh, it's why they pay me some money. Not necessarily the big bucks. Not yet. Jeff must be pretty hydrated. He thinks that I'm gonna edit this out. There could be a whole show dedicated to uh, Jeffrey peeing. And actually, no one around to listen to it. It's probably better than it a show dedicated to Jevin being and people listening to it. I don't think I'd subscribe. I don't think I'd pay to listen to this podcast, especially because Jevon so far is not even in the show. Oh, he's back.
1: All right. Uh, yeah. Thanks uh, for giving me a second. Of course. I have a very small bladder.
0: Ice cream for breakfast.